Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 135 for March 13, 2008, Iron Key. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now. 135 episodes strong and a good one ahead today. Hello, Steve Gibson. Hey, Leo. Great to talk to you again. We are going to be talking in just a little bit uh, with the folks from Iron Key. In fact, that's the title of this episode, Iron Iron Key. Key. And then Raymond Burr need not apply. (laughs) So this is a, um, we've talked about it peripherally, but uh, I know you wanted to get the uh, guy who invented it on the show. This is a USB key that has uh, special built-in encryption and special hardware protection uh, to keep your data private. And it's very interesting. And we learned that it's more than we thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Um, so that's coming up. you have any uh, addenda or news? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, you bet. Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, it was a relatively quiet week over in Microsoft land. However, uh, after our podcast went public last week on Friday, Sun released uh, a updates to their, their so-called JDK and JRE they um their java technology with had some serious vulnerabilities that anyone using the jdk or the jre really need to take a look at um they they had both privilege elevation and buffer overflow vulnerabilities and and for example reading from their announcement uh they said for example this is one of many a vulnerability in the java runtime environment may allow javascript code that is downloaded by a browser to make connections to network services on the system that the browser runs on through Java APIs. This may allow files that are accessible through these network services or vulnerabilities that exist on these network services, which are not otherwise normally accessible, to be accessed or exploited. Hmm. So, you know, the whole idea, of course, was to create a sandboxed environment and keep Java stuff, you know, within its own environment. Well, this says that there's leakage from that and that an attack vector is the user's browser with JavaScript. So the vulnerability, of course, is you go to some website and they're able essentially to bypass your router and firewall and get a connection to your internal network. So that's not good. Microsoft did have a patch for Mac users. Um, Macintosh Office 2004 had a serious vulnerability that allows an attacker to overwrite the contents of computer memory with malicious code. So if you use Microsoft Office, it's not an auto update. You've got to run the Office updater. Oh, and in fact, there were, you're right, there were also some updates to the regular Windows side Office Suite as well. So there were some Office updates across the board, but not not mainstream uh, Windows OS. You can add, and I think it's a good idea to do that if you use Office, you can add Office updates to your overall Windows update. 
Um, I can't remember how to do that, but I think if you go to windowsupdate.com, you can figure um, that out. What you do is you actually switch from Windows Update to Microsoft Update. Ah, okay. And, and Microsoft Update is sort of this omnibus now that does SQL stuff and Office and Windows. And so it's, it's absolutely what you want to do um, in order to keep, you know, basically the whole Microsoft suite um, current. Good. Also, issues in Office 2008, mostly bug issues, uh, stability. Yep. Uh, so that's for Mac as well. Worth updating if you have Office on the Mac. Um, okay, there were a couple TrueCrypt things as well. Um, we talked, one of our Q&A um, questions last week, and, and you and I actually w- talked about this after, well, as part of our, our Q&A. Remember the guy that wanted automatic update of his TrueCrypt volume, mm. but the TrueCrypt timestamp right. was being maintained at its original creation date, not showing that it had been updated. So Jungle Disk was not seeing a change, and and the Jungle Disk backup was not triggering. I got a nice note from uh, the the creator of Jungle Disk saying, "Hey Steve, I, you know several of your listeners." Um, contacted us to ask about that he so so he said i wanted to let you know that there's a timestamp option offered in in TrueCrypt. it's slash m space ts for obviously for timestamp and what that does is that tells TrueCrypt not to fudge the modification time but to leave it real in which case jungle disk then does pick up on the change and will do the backup um, also, last week we had a question about random hash, um, uh, random hashing, and rainbow tables. You'll remember, um, and uh, someone posted over on the GRC forums that that um, because TrueCrypt was using salt in their hash. Uh, uh, there was no problem with rainbow tables. But I and always so put salt in my hash. I figured you did. You seem like <laughs> the kind of guy who would want to salt his hash. So by salting your hash, you the rainbow tables can't be, you can't make a standard rainbow table. Exactly. And for example, that's something, for example, that WPA also does as, as part of its cipher suite. So, and it makes sense. The idea being that part of the randomness, the entropy that you're creating when you're creating the volume is to create a, a chunk of entropy which is so-called salt, which is mixed in with the data that you're hashing so that essentially you end up with custom hash results that are not like anybody else's hash results. So unlike rainbow tables, for example, where they, for example, would be a rainbow table for MD5, the generic MD5 hash, all you have to do to completely destroy those is add a little bit of salt. So that's what TrueCrypt is doing to, to maintain itself. And then the big news. And then we are now at we are now at TrueCrypt version five point one, which has added hibernation file support. Wow, that was fast. It, it did not take these guys long. See, and, open source ain't so bad. There's some advantages yep, to open source. Yep. So we now the one real thing that concerned people was that the hibernation file would be a non-encrypted snapshot of RAM. Now it is encrypted. And they've even solved the uh, annoying Adobe Macromedia problem. They shrunk the size of the bootloader, and they're now able to put two copies of it on the first track of the hard drive. If one of the copies is damaged by something like uh, Macromedia 
um, or Adobe. I think it was a, it was some some PDF component that we learned about last week. Well, if one of them gets damaged, the other one is automatically used, so you don't end up being crippled um, by by doing that. And they re-implemented AES in my favorite programming language. What's that? Assembly language. <laughs> they they took it from C to assembler, and wow. it now runs between thirty and ninety percent faster than it did before. Wow! <laughs> I guess you know people still can benefit from optimizing an assembler. You used to do that all the time, especially I/O. You'd optimize those those little things that, that ran the loops and stuff that ran a lot in assembler. And then it got kind of the point where these processors are so fast you could do everything in C or whatever high-level language you use. But, you know, on something like encryption, there is a lot of processor activity, isn't there? Well, Leo, that's my favorite language is all I, I write in. So. I know, I know. And then there was one little weird blurb I just wanted to sort of bring to our listeners' attention, and that is that CNN covered a story of uh, – they met with three Chinese hackers in their 20s huh. who have claimed to have hacked many of the world's most secure and sensitive sites, including downloading information from the Pentagon after hacking into the Pentagon's network. They claim that they have been paid by the Chinese government to to do this. The, gov- wow. the Chinese government... The Chinese government, of course, denies that and says that's ridiculous. We, we've never paid anyone to do this kind of work. Okay, couple that with the fact that the FBI in, uh, released the news recently that they've participated in over 400 seizures of counterfeit Cisco networking equipment totaling more than $76 million, which has been filtering into the United States from China. So this is counterfeit, for example, Cisco routers, not made by Cisco, coming into the U.S. from China. And you can bet they have back doors. Well, that's exactly the problem. In 2004, some counterfeit Cisco switches ended up in one of the Navy's secure facilities. So, I mean, you know, I use Cisco routers. I know how sophisticated they are. I mean, it is an, it, you know, they, 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 they call it iOS is the OS that runs in mm-hmm. these routers. They, there could be anything in those routers and there'd be no way to know that there weren't, that there weren't back doors in these, in these routers. So, I mean, I mean, it becomes a little frightening. No kidding. Wow. No kidding. So make sure you're getting the real Cisco router. Yep. And, I, of and I have to believe that the Chinese government, that's cyber warfare. And you have to believe our government's doing the same kind of thing to other gov- to other hostile, potentially hostile governments. It's, it's, it's sad and freaky, but I think you're probably right, yeah. Leo. Yeah, well, and in a way, it's not because, uh, hey, at least, you know, I mean, it's not, it's a kind of warfare that people don't necessarily die from. So, and it's certainly where it's going to happen. It's more like an economic warfare. I mean, it's not a, yeah. it's not a good thing, but it's certainly, uh, I would expect it to be going on. And I guess that's where the world is headed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, Spinrite fixed a Wi-Fi problem the other day. <laughs> All right. I like that. How could it possibly, <laughs> I'll bite. How could it possibly do that? Uh, we got a, a fun email uh, on March 9th from uh Steve, I'm afraid to pronounce his last name, uh, Diorio. I think that's it. Steve Diorio. 
Um, and for Elaine's benefit, I'll spell it D-I-Y-O-R-I-O. Um, anyway, his, so his subject was Spinrite Fixes Weird Wireless Problem. And he said, hi, Steve. Just wanted to drop you a note to say thanks and thought this might be an interesting one to mention on a future episode of Security Now. Yeah. Uh, he says, I have Ubuntu Linux installed on an HP laptop and have been extremely happy with it for quite some number of years now. I've noticed that my system has been booting and running a bit slower lately, parens, a feature of Windows that I thought I'd left far behind. No, yeah. uh, close parens. Mm. He said, and more recently, my wireless suddenly refused to connect. I tried everything within my knowledge to get the wireless working and spent countless hours scratching my head at trying to figure this mysterious problem out. In light of the slowness... I figured I would run Spinrite at level four to do some maintenance on the whole hard drive. Lo and behold, after fixing some errors on my drive, my wireless is working again. Thanks for a wonderful product. I will share my experience with everyone I meet. So and, what, we've, and we've shared his experience with everyone who listens to this podcast. Why would it, I guess there's a, was there a flaw maybe in the file or? Oh, just, I mean, this is a bizarre circumstance where there were problems on his drive in a sector of, of something to do with his wireless networking, and Spinrite fixed the sector that was erroneous and brought his wireless back online. You know, one thing I do notice, and I get a lot of calls from people say, everything slowed down, slowed down, what's going on? And of course, you know, naturally you say, spy, where are viruses, or, you know. But one thing is, if a drive is flaky... The operating system can spend an inordinate amount of time trying to read it. It may eventually read it and continue on, but that can really slow a system down, can it? Well, and in fact, yes, uh, one of my very good friends from many, many moons ago uh, was um, experimenting with some servers. He listened to Security Now, and he, he asked for a copy of Spinrite uh, to sort of see what was going on with hard drives. It, he learned that the vibration of the fans oh, wow. in the server chassis were enough to throw the hard drive heads off track so that even though everything was working, the system was running much more slowly because the drives were having to go around and around and retry their their reads in order to get the the data off the drive. Just mean because and the problem is, of course, the track densities are so high now in order to get these multi hundred gigs of data in such a small space that a little bit of vibration will end up coupling into the drive. And it, so it turned out that just by taking the drives out of the, like, like off the server chassis and suspending them, suddenly the servers ran much faster. Now, how would he use Spinrite to find that out? Well, he was able just to perform more experiments with it and watch Spinrite run in sort of a in, in a uniform fashion. And like, I think he told me he, he pushed down on the drive coupling it mechanically more oh. tightly to the server and he we saw it slow down so dynastat as dynastat's running you could kind of get an idea of the reliability or performance of the drive sure yeah oh that's a that's a clever diagnostic i think as computers get more complex we're gonna have to see more and more of these kinds of people who are really good at this kind of deduction because there's such complex systems and there's so many interactions you can't just say, oh, well, it's got to be that anymore. You really have to, I don't know what, try stuff, I guess. Well, and you know, when we talk about network security, cyber terrorism, you know, the notion, I mean, you know, these three Chinese hackers said 
there no website is safe. Yeah. It, they have to know what the software is that the website's running. Then they, they dig into their bag of tricks right. and they know where vulnerabilities are. And, and the problem is, as this stuff gets incredibly complicated, there, it becomes more like an analog domain than a digital domain because there's, it, it gets soft. It's just not as hard. It's not a, you know, a, a yes or no, this packet right. can, or not, can or cannot go. It's like, well, wait a minute. We'll use this protocol and come in through some network that this has an affiliation with and jump, you know, hop around a few times and get in. I kind of uh, hate it when um, there are errors on my server and the server announces what it is, its exact version number, what software is running. You know, oh, this is Apache 127 and you've got a problem uh, with the Perl module, CPAN underscore 43. It's like saying to the hacker, this is what we're running. (laughs) Oh, you mean like it actually spits it out on the web page? Yeah, Apache does that. Yep. Kind of yep. bugs me. I mean, I guess with uh, Nmap or Nessus or something, you could figure out what server is running anyway. But I don't know. It seems like they should be a little more quiet, just for security reasons. Yeah, you the the less you the less you say, the better. Yeah, I learned that from Stealth Mode at Shields Up GRC dot com. <laughs> hey, we're going to uh, talk a, a little bit about Audible, and then we're going to get to our guest. We're going to talk with uh, uh, Dave about uh, Iron Key. He's the CEO of Iron Key, and then a really kind of an amazing. Uh, amalgam of security technologies all built into one USB key. I think you're going to be interested in this. Before I do, I want to remind you that our sponsor is also audible.com. They are uh, sponsoring the entire Twit network. And, you know, they had a 20% growth in uh, in market share uh, last year. And I have to think that we had a little bit to do with that. Because advertising on the Twit network. It yeah. works. It works. It's uh, audible. Uh, is you know, it's, it's a nice relationship for us because we, we use it and we love it. Not you, Steve. I know you're a Kindle guy. But uh, you'll get there. Your eyesight will get deteriorate, and pretty soon you'll be, you'll be reading Audible books as well. Audible is doing something fun right now during March Madness. They're doing a bracket, a tournament of audio books. <laughs> Week one is down, and uh, there's some interesting winners and losers. You could participate in this. Uh, it's just, it's just uh, they've got categories: editors' picks, bestsellers, critically acclaimed, and customer favorites. And uh, for instance, some some upsets, some surprises uh, in the editors' picks. The matchup was uh, Einstein versus Catch-22. Catch-22, the older book, won. It won. Uh, kind, of a, kind of a shocker there. Uh, looking down in the uh, uh, customer favorites, I'm really interested in this matchup right here. Pillars of the Earth uh, defeated Play Dead by David Rosenfeld. I thought that, would, that was pretty obvious. I knew I could tell that was going to be a... That wasn't an upset. That was a no-brainer. Uh, Dune... Which and by the way, the audible version of Dune is great. It's a complete production. Did beat the Terry Pratchett making money. I don't know that. I thought that was a close one. I'm a big Pratchett fan, but now it's this is this is the big matchup in the uh, second round. <laughs> it is the Pillars of the Earth versus Dune. The winner heads on to the third round, and of course, there'll be uh, there's you know you've got your your Sweet Sixteen. You've got it's just like the bra- it's just like March Madness. You got your Final Four. It all goes on through April 8th. Check it out at audible.com. And if you if you want to read these books, many of them we have recommended, I notice, you just go to audible.com slash security now and to sign up, you get a free book. A audible podcast, right? Oh, yeah, we're Audible podcast. Oh, it's so confusing to me. You're, you're the first one. The rest of them are still audible.com, but you're audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Thank you, Steve, for that correction. Glad somebody's paying attention. And sign up for your book. 
free credit toward a toward a book and uh, there are so many great ones catch 22 is a really fun one to listen to because it's such a, such a funny book we do thank them for their support if you are if you are a reader you've got to become an audible reader the greatest way to get books re- read while you're working out while you're driving all those times you can't look at a screen or hold something in your hand audible.com and i use it on the plane it's the cure for road rage i just love it audible.com audiblepodcast.com slash security now we thank them for their support so uh introduce our guest here well this is david jevons who is the founder and ceo of iron key corporation who we're going to spend uh, a nice chunk of time with talking about iron key uh what it is how the technology works and all the things that it is way beyond just being a secure usb flash drive very cool so, um, yeah, David, I wanted to, to give sort of like get directly from the creator's uh, brain what the genesis was, the motivation for Iron Key. And, and I guess really, I mean, it competes with, with software-based encryption solutions. So I wanted to get a, a real good sense for, for, for our, our, our listeners who have been very interested in Iron Key. And in fact, you know, we're interviewing you and talking to you and doing a whole show on it because of, of demand from our listeners. Um, what has Iron Key got that no other solutions do? Well, I appreciate the, uh, the chance to speak with you guys. And um, you've thrown quite a lot of good questions out. So let me try to take that stuff one by one. Uh, I think the first thing you asked was around uh, how we came up with the idea and what we were trying to accomplish. And I'll be quite honest with you. What we started out with is certainly not what we ended up with. And I think that's probably true of most businesses out there. Um, I've been in the security business now for over 10 years. And one of the things that I do is I run a nonprofit organization called the Anti-Fishing Working Group. And you you can run find... that? That is a great group. Yeah, thanks. We, um, I've it... referred people to that site many, many times, especially because of your archive of phishing emails. It's for people who don't believe in phishing or say, oh, I would never be fooled by that. If they go to those archives, they look so good, real that it's very convincing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, gr- it's a group effort. We now have over 2,000 member companies and government agencies and law enforcement groups that how, work with us. How did that come about? Was this your idea? or uh... It was. Um, in uh, 2003, I was working at a company called Tumbleweed, which makes oh, anti-spam yeah. and email encryption. And, um, you know, I started seeing this strange spam that looked like it was coming from PayPal and it wasn't or looked like it was coming from Citibank and it clearly wasn't. And I looked into it, and um, we decided to publish a little report because we saw quite a big spike of it at the end of 2003, just before Christmas. There was a huge spike, and um, we got a lot of interest. We, we had uh, quite a number of banks and major ISPs come together, and we started the working group. And to be honest, I thought back then fishing would have been solved by probably mid-2004. Why hasn't it been? Because, uh, first of all, I, I, I could see why... I'm sorry, uh, I don't mean to hijack this, Steve, but I do. I, want, I think it's an important <laughs> subject. We'll get to Iron Key in a second. I, I, I can see why you end users, consumers are, are fooled by them. Because if I get an email that looks like it's from PayPal, smells like it's from PayPal, and says they're going to cancel my account unless I click this link, I click the link and it goes to a web page that looks like PayPal, I could see how you'd be fooled by that. But in every case, that link has to go to a bad, a bad website. You would think that those sites would get shut down so fast that it would just not work very well. 
Well, I'll tell you, back in 2004, there were no shutdown companies. Nobody admitted there was a problem. Uh, People didn't understand it. There was no email authentication protocols. It wasn't on the radar of anybody. And I I think that's one of the things that we've been successful with is building a lot of awareness. Um, One of the things that we have done, though, is we've tracked the bad guys and how they've changed and how they've grown and how they've become more and more professional about stealing data, stealing credentials, stealing passwords. I mean, they have gotten so effective. So to your point about takedowns, now there are takedown companies and people know how to get sites taken off the Internet. So what the bad guys do is they go and abuse DNS. They implement something called fast flux where they basically change the server every 10 seconds oh, where it's being wow. hosted. Right. So they, everything you do, the bad guys who are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year off this cybercrime, they move a whole nother step ahead in distributed systems technology, massive botnet armies to get around, spam filters. I mean, it's a continuing evolution against well-funded bad guys. Well, thank you for uh, the Anti-Phishing Working Group. It's antifishing.org, phishing with a P-H. Um, and obviously, it still needs, <laughs> needs, needs to be there, which is sad to say. Yeah. So that, so so that the, was the inspiration. Well, yeah. So because one of the things that I, I get out of that, you know, it's a nonprofit group, but one of the real values I have out of it is um, I get to see what the bad guys are doing probably in advance of most other people because, you know, I, I know a lot of the security researchers. I work with the financial institutions. And so you get to see the trends and the sophistication. And it became clear to me that to really start protecting the infrastructure and to protect people's privacy and their passwords and, the, and the, really the stability of the financial system, you need some pieces of hardware. You can't just do everything in software. Right. So you need either hardware to protect against key loggers or hardware to um, encrypt data or hardware to do strong authentication on the Internet so that if they steal your password, it doesn't matter. They still can't get in. And that the person who you're logging into, they know who you are and it's really you. And so that was really the genesis of the whole Iron Key project was, you know, we see where it's going. Let's put something together that can be used by millions of people because it's easy to use, it's not expensive, and, it's, and it does something that they, they know how to use, and that we can build it as a platform to help protect against more and more of these threats. So, you know, the first thing was, hey, there are lots and lots of flash drives out there. In fact, well over 100 million of these sold every year. Why don't we make a really great one with hardware encryption, no software needs to be installed, make it cross-platform, but add some magic in there, which is authentication. So it can be used to do a lot more than just a regular flash drive. So um, why flash drives, though? Are they, do you think that they're particularly vulnerable? Well, so there's two aspects to it. I think the first one is that if you look at an enterprise context, People use flash drives all the time to back data up. They go on sales calls. They're going from hospitals to clinics. They're brokers moving all around the country. There's lots of different use cases for why people use them. And as you know, people lose them. They get stolen. The laptop gets stolen. And, you know, there's just increasing regulations about making sure everything's locked down. Right. Right. And, and of course, we're also more and more seeing the the requirements at, at various levels to to make sure that anything that can be stolen is encrypted. Absolutely. And, you know, we can get into why hardware encryption is the right answer versus software encryption in a minute. Um, but that was clearly one market requirement right there was 
make these things really easy to use, and you can't mess it up. Anything you write on it is for sure secure. Um, one question I saw was that um, you talk about being able to do a secure backup, and so I'm wondering whether th- um, that works by pulling the encrypted data off of the flash, not going through the decryption on the way out. Um, it actually does not work that way, although that is a very good idea on how to do it. Um, the reason it does not work that way is because the encryption keys on the Iron Key devices are not exportable. You Good. can't pull them off, right, which means that malware can't copy them, um, a malicious user can't steal them, um, you can't have a, they're not vulnerable to cold boot attacks that we, we've seen out of Princeton, um, some research in the last two weeks on that, about yep. attacking software encryption. So if I can't pull the encryption key off the device, but the data is sitting on your computer encrypted with it. If I lose my iron key and I go buy a new one, it's got a different encryption key. How do I decrypt the data? Right. So, so you have to run it back through the cipher chip in order to decrypt it and then re-encrypt it with something that's outside of the chip. That's correct. You have to generate another AES key that is a strong AES key, a random AES key generated by the hardware random number generator. You encrypt the data with that, and then you further encrypt the AES key with several rounds of a hash based off of your password, and you have to store that with the encrypted data. Right. It is how all basic basic software encryption has to work. So, so the, the cipher chip is a little bit like the uh, uh, TPM uh, technology that we have discussed at length in that you are you're limited in in what you're able to ask it to tell you and for example it'll it internally generates these ciphers um i mean the keys which are used by the iron key and so you can tell it to do encryption and decryption but not there's no facility for you to say give me the key that you have inside that is correct and you can't have the hardware allow that and then pretend like i won't expose that api right because you you know i know from everything i see in security if it exists people will try to hack it huh. and they will find a backdoor if it exists you cannot have any backdoors because and they I guess will the, get found yep yep i i guess the other thing that i found uh, intriguing uh, certainly you make the point that you you you're, you're going to prevent brute force attacks by by counting down the number of 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 incorrect attempts to access the key through a password mm-hmm. and there you, there's there's language uh, at, in various places on the site and in the help files about this thing self-destructing. Right. So let's talk about the brute force prevention first. If I find a hard drive, a flash drive, a computer, and it's been encrypted with a software encryption package, um, you know, there are freeware ones and there are ones that you can buy. Um, but effectively, the key is stored uh, somehow with the data and then encrypted with some derivation of your password, or the key itself is in fact a derivation of your password, which means if I want to break an encrypted drive, I don't go try and break AES encryption because, I mean, I've I've done the calculations even with 100 million computers, I can get it down to, you know, a a couple hundred thousand years maybe. It's not practical. What you do is you guess passwords. You can build a machine for $10 million that will guess 40,000 billion passwords a second. I really? Can crack any, yeah, you can crack strong, you know, you can crack things with 10-character passwords in three hours. Wow. Absolutely. And in fact, with some of the NVIDIA supercomputers, it's probably less than $10 million now. 
Wow. Yeah. How many a second? How many a, a second? <laughs> you can get 40,000 billion passwords a second for about 10 million bucks. 40,000? That's 40 trillion. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that, the way to attack the software... How can, how can you get it even to respond yeah. that fast? Or, I guess you have to... Well, you just do it all in parallel. You just build a chip with a hundred cores on it, and you put a hundred hundred chips per board, and then you and you know each chip costs maybe five ten bucks, and then you just put ten thousand boards in a <laughs> computer room, and then you stick it next to Niagara Rose. Falls for power yeah, no and, and, well, and yeah, cooling. Yeah. But that's why sure, you said the NSA had to, has to do something like this, Steve. It's it's, it's just prohibitively right. expensive for the Russian mafia to do it, but. Uh... The NSA right, or you it. set up an online service and, and offer yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, it's the new SETI at home. <laughs> Brute force cracking at home. at home. Yeah, but so this point of it is that the key, the way to crack it is 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 regressing passwords. And to be quite honest, you can crack most passwords much faster than that because most people don't use a strong random ten digit password. And so yeah. there's commercial password cracking tools available on the internet that also work with hardware. And in fact, you can get forensic. You can buy computer systems that are multiprocessor purely for cracking passwords. So that's the way to do it. So the defense is you have to have hardware-implemented brute force prevention, and the keys have to be managed in hardware and not exportable. And so what we do on the iron key is the, the crypto chip itself manages the password count and the password verification so that when you try to log into it, you know, it will check itself, is this the right password? And it, and it decrements its counter, which is stored on chip in non-volatile protected memory under layers of metal with differential power attack protection and things of that nature. So you cannot go and replay it. You can't put wires on it to turn it off. You can't recopy NAND flash. And you, you basically have 10 tries and that's it. So that and, effectively okay, makes and, it uncrackable by password guessing means. And and when you say and that's it, what happens after a, a failed attempt to guess number ten? So on, of course, on try number nine, you're warned extensively. This is the end. Your last chance. <laughs> we mean it for sure. Seriously, you're about to get a shiny, nice little doorstop if you do this. Um, but if you enter it incorrectly ten times, you're an attacker, um, and you enter it ten times. Basically, what happens is um, the uh, the crypto chip is disabled. The encryption keys are killed. And then we do our flash trash where we basically, as a further step, we uh, erase at a hardware level, at a very low level in the NAND flash, we erase all of the encrypted data, including all the wear leveling and any IV data in, for the AES encryption. So it's a much lower level, uh, higher speed way to erase all data than you could ever possibly do with software. Very nice. Yeah. All encryption keys, by the way, on the device are also further encrypted. So if somebody did find some way to strip it down and get an electron microscope in there and somehow defeat the anti-tamper and the layers of metal, you still have to go break AES. So we believe now, it's got multiple lev levels of protection. The, the one thing that that you're not doing that occurred to me, because I, I, I see... I, I've seen reference, and, and you've mentioned it to keystroke logging protection, yeah. is that this is the same password every time. Um, yeah, so we're looking at a couple of different things on the keystroke side of things. So um, the what you have to do is you have to look at the threat model about what you're actually defending against. Yep. Uh, so the first one is I've studied many, many key loggers, and as part of some research we did 
uh, for the Department of Homeland Security, we analyzed over 60,000 pieces of malware in different keyloggers. Most of the keyloggers in modern high-end ones also do screenshot logging because they're designed to defeat virtual keyboards. So if you take a, if you take a look at the good keyloggers out there, they will actually take a click of they will take a small screenshot, oftentimes of the screen around where the cursor is or a full black and white image so they can see if you're clicking on a virtual keyboard. Hmm. So if you're real if, if if that's an issue, you know, it's you can't just solve it by a virtual keyboard. But that is one thing that we're looking at. Um you could do complicated things like the password's different every time when people have suggested you hold a button and every third character is your password or you do a challenge response and say what's the third letter of your password and you know, you could do all that, but it's a usability nightmare. Yeah. And is it really worth investing a lot of time in writing the software to do that versus looking at other things, uh, for example, physical external entry of your password? Right. So we're looking more down those lines. Um, we've looked, yep. you know, the, the, the keylogger thing you can, if, and the, here's the other point, is if it's a generic keylogger, key okay, well, um, it's on your computer, it's, you know, getting at your flash drive is probably the least of your worries because this thing's on your computer getting your key logs to all your Internet stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, right. So, you know, get and also if it really wanted to attack you, it's going to copy the it, it's custom target and it's going to copy the data off your computer anyway once you unlock the device. Yep. So there is certainly a threat, but you have to kind of look at it and go, OK, what's what is the real threat? What are they going after? And are there other ways to mitigate it that are not quite so obvious? So what this is really designed to do is if you lose the USB key, if you, you know, you, or somebody takes it from you, not somebody who has access to your system. Um, yeah, if somebody has access to your system, you're they can dead. install malware on your computer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're dead. Yeah, right, right. Um, one thing that surprised me as I was establishing the password for my key um, I got, you know how you have the little red and green tag that shows mm. whether your your password is okay? Mm. Um, it turned green for me after I'd entered four characters. Uh-huh. Or five, maybe. But, I mean, I was surprised what a short password it would allow me to use for the iron key itself. And I thought, well, maybe that's because of this ten strikes and you're out, you know, guessing doesn't really work approach. Right. So if there, there are two answers to it. Uh, well, I guess there's probably three, but one is usability. So we wanted to make a product that a lot of people could use. So if you put it at eight characters with three upper and two lower, lots of people are not going to remember that. And then they're, or they're going to go write it down someplace. Right. Which is not that secure if you write it down, especially if you write it on the back of your flash drive or in huh. your wallet. Um, the other one is you're, you're, you're quite right on because there's brute force password guessing prevention. It's not the same as a software attack where on software I can, you know, guess thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of passwords, you know, in a second with the iron key, you've got 10 tries. So you've actually restricted your attack surface down to be, um, what, you know, five or four, 10, whatever characters you choose, but there's only 10 tries. There's right. not a thousand or a million. So you can effectively use shorter passwords and your odds of, of being attacked are actually lower. Now, I do recommend longer passwords, but I personally, my personal recommendation, it's not a corporate one, but a personal recommendation is use a passphrase that's easy to remember, like, you know, the quick 
brown fox jumped over my iron key or something. Because, you know, it's, it, you don't have to have weird numbers and letters and upper and lower case because, again, you've only got 10 tries to guess. Yep. Now, that's kind of a nice to- that's kind of nice. I mean, it, it, you're, you're right. That is a totally a usability issue. And that this issue was raised by Bill Gates, who said uh, passwords don't work because people can't remember them. Either they use a password they can remember, in which case it's no good, or they can't remember them and they put them on a sticky on their, on their screen. And then that's no good either. Uh, he was. But this was his argument for smart cards. Well, and, well exactly. and, and and the point David is making is that it's the only way you can really do this and make it secure is if the counter right. is on the hardware right. because any time – I mean you could certainly have a counter in software, but all you have to do is have some other software that mm-hmm. resets it back. Right. And, and, and again, you're vulnerable to brute force attacks. Now, when something like that is on hardware, though, it's still software. It's just – it's written to firmware. Can it um, can it be modified with a jump or something like that? No. Well, you'd have so now that, that well the that brings up the question of can someone load malicious code? Right. Right. So the firmware that does the counter is not modifiable it, uh, when it comes out of the factory. So it's actually not upgradable. It's it's actually a metal layer in the factory. So that firmware oh, okay. itself is not. It's actually part of the silicon. Right. So you so now, so you're never going to change your mind and wish that they it, it was twenty tries instead of ten. You you well, at, at, at that part of the chip have to refab, is physic, refab is, the chip. <laughs> exactly. It's well, physically locked at ten. Yeah. Well, actually, the, 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 the logic which implements the counter is locked. The counter can actually be changed in our enterprise version, which is just coming out in the next couple of weeks, and that can be changed once you've logged in and you have to submit the existing password. And you can then change a password try count based on on policy. So an enterprise could say, you know what, I want the try count to be three, not ten. Right. And I want to enforce a nine character password uh, with three upper and two lower and a number. That's excellent. And so nice. we've, we we've put that in because there's environments where you want a, a homogeneous password policy across all devices. Um, the other thing, just just one point I wanted to bring up about about the firmware is we do have the ability for parts of the engine which implement other co- kinds of logic to be upgraded, and that brings out the question of malicious firmware. Can someone put malware onto the device itself? And we prevent that by digitally signing all firmware updates with a hardware signing module. That's, that's securely managed. And those firmware updates, when they're loaded onto the device, are then verified by hardware with a 2048-bit RSA signature. So if you try to load malicious firmware, it will not load onto that device. Nice. And, and, so, and it's only you guys who have the matching public key at the other end that, that allows you to securely sign the firmware um, after verifying that it's what you want to load onto the um, keys. Right. The public key is the public key is actually uh, burned into the silicon. It can't be tampered with. And then the private keys are stored on smart in an HSM that's accessed by two man rule with two different smart cards. So you can't get rogue rogue firmware. Very nice. Um, We should talk a little bit about the additional services uh, that you guys offer that go along with the key. I mean, we've we've in the past covered multi-factor authentication a lot. Um, is there any provision for the key being sort of a general purpose hardware token for other authentication? Absolutely, there is. And that really gets back to why we decided to do a USB device in the first place. So, yes, there's this issue of USB storage and 
There's these cool things that are coming along, like portable applications and people putting virtual machines on iron keys. But the other thing that we really were cognizant of is that strong authentication, I believe, is an imperative. I, I frankly believe that passwords are not enough for most applications, and that will continue to be proven true over the next 10 years. Yep. And one way to do strong authentication is to have it on a USB token that can be inserted into any computer, that can be removed from that computer, um, that requires a strong password to get into. And uh, that's what is also part of the iron key. So um, if you just want to use it as a flash drive, that's great. You can do that. It's the world's most secure flash drive, and hopefully people like it a lot. But there's more to it. These devices are full crypto engines. They have full capability to do RSA encryption. They can do SHA-256 uh, uh, hashing. Uh, they have a variety of different crypto algorithms on them implemented in hardware. Um, they have strong encryption keys on the devices for uh, private and public key operations. And that allows us to do a lot of really cool things that are actually really easy and seamless to the user, but add a ton of security for two-factor. And is any of this API published? <laughs> so uh, there is a PKCS11 API that actually is available with every device, and that is how we make the onboard Firefox talk to the crypto hardware now. So uh -huh. you could actually take open applications like Thunderbird or anything else that uses PKCS11, which is an open API, and you could actually use crypto ops for your own applications. Yeah, and I did notice that you had the DLL there as, as part of the files that you were loading. Exactly. Uh, the other thing that we've done is we are uh, now in a sort of limited uh, beta of a more broad software developer kit so that you can actually, as a developer, access more functions and do things like load your own software on the device so that you can create your own custom application container or what have you using the iron key devices very nice wow. we will be announcing some interesting partnerships in the next couple of weeks around uh other forms of two-factor authentication that are on the device because it really is designed as a general purpose uh authentication device to support not just pki based authentication and to support multiple different credentials on the device at the same time so there's some provision then for for user storage in the uh, um, either in the iron key or protected by the cipher chip. That's correct. There are uh, areas where applications and uh, can have private encrypted storage areas with their own AES keys and their own access control. Yeah. Very nice. Um, and we should talk about the other uh, services like the safe web surfing and mm -hmm. privacy and Tor and so forth. Okay. Um, one of the cool things about having strong authentication on the device is we can offer really neat web services, and we hope that third parties will over time develop them as well. Um, and so you know it's really that device. So one of the things that's very simple that we offer, it's, it's completely optional for users, is self-service password recovery. So if you're using a strong password and you're the forgetful type, um, you have the option when you fire up the device to register with our online service and um, we will store your device password for you on our service. And if you forget it, because let's say you, I don't know, go out and change your password after a couple of beers and forget the next day what you change it to, or you don't use it very often or what have you, you're a busy doctor and you only use it once every week or two, you can actually come back to the online service, answer a couple of secret question challenges, 
we send you an email to also confirm your identity, and then we'll actually present you with your password so you can unlock your device. Completely optional, but it leverages the strong authentication of the device so that we know it's not somebody else trying to spoof you and get your, get your password. I was just going to say I wanted to make sure that our listeners picked up on the fact that it is only possible to do this if if that if if the iron key in question is physically mounted on the computer at that time yep you have to have the iron key um we do that we do the challenge response you have to log into the device you have to answer secret questions you have to have permission or you have to have possession of the um email account as well and yep. again completely optional and we're looking at stronger authentication as well like potentially you know we could add things where you um ping the mobile phone for an authentication code. I like that. I always yeah. like that. It's not, it's, it really is interesting. So once you have this hardware uh, encryption capability, or this hardware uh, random number generator capability, it really is a useful... It's more than just a, a USB key. Yeah. It really... It has the potential to become uh, a, a way to manage your identities, to manage your passwords, and also over time, we believe, to carry applications around. Right. So speaking um, of passwords... And, and, what, Go ahead. One of the applications that you have on the device, if you choose to use it as a password manager, which, yep. um, you know, there's lots of password managers. You can download freeware, and hopefully you don't download one uh, that's actually malware, but there are some good real ones out there as well. Just check the reputation of what you're downloading. But, um, you know, it's a password manager for your Internet passwords. A couple of things that are different about it, though, are, one, the passwords are not stored in a data file on the USB key that could be copied. They are stored inside of the USB key in protected memory areas, so they're not on the file system. And two, we offer the ability to do an online encrypted backup of your password database in case you lose your iron key. Oh, so if you get another iron key and you re-authenticate and prove your identity, you can get back and you can recover your password database. So it starts to be the beginnings of ways to manage identities and passwords beyond just store- storing a file. Could you use it as a like the football dongle, Steve? That we've talked about the uh, the PayPal dongle. Uh, I, I I guess you could put software on there that would do the same thing, right? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, we've we've talked about David the the uh, um, secure ID and Verisign's uh, you know six digit LCD one time password system where where you know you you are you ha- you prove that you're in physical possession of the device by pressing a button and it gives you a a sequential six characters that you then enter in and the server at the other end knows the the key in your device and so is able to to confirm that you must be in possession of it yeah i've got a keychain full of those <laughs> would, would it be possible to use an iron key for that kind of thing at some point so um i hate to do this but uh, I have to use this moment as a teaser to invite people to come to our booth at the RSA show in San Francisco at the uh, second week of April. <laughs> we are making no announcements here today. <laughs> but, yes, this is a general purpose authentication device. See, that's what I yeah. like. Eliminate Fantastic. all those dongles. Yeah. It's also worth noting, too, that um, the um, when you use the iron key, for example, on on a foreign machine, um, and this differentiates. It's one of the things I notice. It differentiates it from, for example, TrueCrypt that we've talked about. Uh, you do not need admin privileges in order to run the the client side software in order to access the key, which you know can really be a good thing. I cannot tell you how difficult that was to do. By the way, <laughs> that was so hard to make that work. 
without installing drivers and software because we're not just, you know, copying files. We're doing cryptographic operations, control operations. There's a whole bunch of information going between the device and the, and the control panel software. Yep. To make that work without installing drivers on XP in non-admin mode was unbelievable amounts of work. So difficult to do. And well, I really, I really think it's worthwhile because, again, on, on a system you don't control, you may not have right. admin privileges, right. but you do need access to your data. How about Vista? Were you able to do it on Vista too? It works fine on Vista. We are right now in beta testing of Windows 2000 SP3. And, <laughs> You'll um, like that, Steve. <laughs> Steve's the last man still using <laughs> Windows 2000. We, uh, we launched a beta of uh, Linux support this week. Great. So we'll be, and we're Ma- doing and a Mac too. We have basic Mac. It's not the, as much as we want, um, but you, once you initialize it on Windows or Linux, you can then unlock it at least as a flash drive on Mac. But we will be adding more fully featured Mac support. If anybody's a super hot Mac programmer, we're hiring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. So, um, what, and so the, the capability to do that driver thing is that a, a requirement for? All the functionality of the Iron Key. It's, I think you said that you don't have to have that for everything. The uh, which capability? The driver. The driver uh, support. The, well, the driverless support is needed because you have to enter your password into the device, and we have to be able to securely communicate that to the device. I and see. that goes over obviously not a data so, connection so, over USB. So that's the piece that has to be installed onto XP or. Vista. No, we don't have to install anything. Oh, you don't. No, it's completely driverless. That's the magic. I see what you're saying. Right. We that was. I mean, that was probably six or seven months of work, seven days a week, 15 hours a day by super, super smart people. Huh. It's non-trivial. And that connection, by the way, is fully encrypted. The, the control connection between the software and the device, not for data, but for all the control connection, passwords, crypto APIs, and all that is a fully encrypted TLS-like stream. So do you, huh, do you use the mass storage class uh, driver? Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't sound happy about it. <laughs> but that's how you that's how you'd see it as a hard drive. Is that yeah. sufficient for you to communicate all this other stuff too or do you have to do something else? The the, the theory is no, the reality is yes. Oh. Ma- magic hand waving happens here. Interesting. And, and and then obviously you must also be protecting the the machine's client software from any kind of tampering and and messing around because you know it has to be trusted in order to establish the tls dialogue with the iron key itself right so um uh we do as much as we can um the all that software is locked on a virtual cd-rom it's digitally signed but at the end of the day to be quite honest you cannot trust the host computer ever yep you just have to assume the host computer is not trustworthy and you have to do your best yeah, but you you know, on doing your best includes yeah, making sure you, you can't tamper with the software, um, doing PKI operations between the software and the device to establish TLS type connections, things of that nature. Well, let's assume worst case scenario, somebody's uh, got a host computer that's just you know, completely owned. Um, does obviously that means they can see any data before it's copied to the iron key? But does it mm-hmm. does it does it soften the iron key afterwards? I mean, when you unplug it, now the iron key is still secure. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and that's because we're doing things like, for example, software updates and, and firmware updates all have to be digitally signed and are verified in hardware. So being able to put low-level malware on the device is not really feasible. Um, I, I think some of the things – I mean, we also control the auto-run, so malware should not be able to automatically run off it if it's copied onto the device. I think there's more that can be done, for example, putting 
um, AV and anti-spyware scans when you unlock the device. So we're looking at a bunch of different options in that area. Do you, do you, are you using U3? How are you, how are you, what are you doing the audio? How are you doing the auto run? Um, we're not. U3 was really a sort of a proprietary thing um, that actually has been sold off to, to Microsoft. It, it, was, it ended up, in my view, being kind of a shareware distribution <laughs> thing. I mean, if you look at what, what was the killer app for it, I never quite figured that out. But it sounds like well, you're doing something similar because you're mounting a locked uh, CD-ROM image and well, so forth. Yeah, yeah, essentially, the the Iron Key has has several profiles. One is that w when you initially insert it into the machine, it looks like a, a CD-ROM. David was saying that they they have also taken great pains to protect that from being altered in any way. And right. then the CD-ROM starts up and it invokes the client, which then mounts another device, which is your in, your encrypted uh, drive. That's right. So we, the, it comes up as two devices. One is CD-ROM, runs the software. Um, then we, we have to deal with drive mapping issues because you might be in an enterprise environment where you've gone and mapped a F drive to some network drive, which you're not supposed to do, but people do all the time. And so you have to then negotiate where you're going to mount that new secure volume. And that comes up as a removable media. And once you've authenticated to the device, we mount the uh, we mount the, the media on there, so there's your, you know, four gigabytes of writable storage. Um, that also protects against certain attacks, for example, cloning and um, offline uh, attacks. So imagine you got a software encrypted flash drive. You could copy the contents off of it and then yep. go and farm it out to a botnet of 10,000 computers and for free go and attack it or just run common attack tools on your, on your laptop. And the Iron Key can't do that because we don't mount until you've actually successfully logged into the device. Very interesting. Yeah, I, it's, I, I, uh, I it, love it's, the challenge that you faced and how you and and and, this, and the work that you put into solving all these. It's really great. And then um, uh, and then also you 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 guys have a, a, what you call a secure sessions service. That's right. Um, we uh, we basically have, um, and, and I think you mentioned it. It's a, a it's based on Tor technology. We're we're big fans of the Tor project. Um, but basically, one of the problems with with that system, which is effectively a, it creates encrypted tunnels out to the internet, so that um, you know people can't easily spy on your traffic. Um, but there's some number of problems with the with the experimental, what they call the experimental network out there, which is that um, it's slow. And you don't know who's actually running the endpoint, so oftentimes you get malicious people running endpoints, injecting malware, injecting code, injecting trackers, redirecting DNS, or what have you. So what we did is we built a private network uh, based on that technology um, where we establish an encrypted surfing connection from your computer out to our servers. It's a three-layer encryption model, so we can't actually track your activities and record it um, because it goes through multiple hops at different data centers. Um, we also run the DNS for you. So you're protected against farming attacks. If you, let's say you're on a Wi-Fi network and someone's running malicious DNS on there trying to route you to their server instead of when you typed in PayPal, uh, they could take you to somewhere else. So we protect against that by running the DNS queries through our network as well. So you're getting, uh, you're getting privacy, um, you're getting accurate DNS information uh, as well. That's tremendous. Yeah, I'm, 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 I had no idea. I thought it was just a USB key with like a, <laughs> a cool brushed metal finish. I, you know, 
the other, the other thing we built into that was an anonymous subscription protocol so we can, you know, you're not just going to get everybody piling onto that network, but again, it's an anonymous cryptographic protocol that was validated by a number of different cryptographers. So, um, you know, we know you're allowed to be on it, but we don't know who you are. Wow. So you're not doing your own tour thing. You're, you're still a gateway to tour. No, no, no. It, it, it's their own network. It's of your tour, own tour. Of, 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 yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and you control the exit nodes. So you're really we control the Yeah. Wow. So we can control security on the exit nodes. We know where they are, we can, and we control the DNS out of them and things like that. So you can provide a lot of different services on top of that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Really neat. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to buy one of these, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I have three of them now. I know. Did you break one? Did you actually uh, see if it, it self-destructed? No, no, no. I, I don't I don't want to lose it. It's just too cool. Yeah. And we ought to also mention, and, and the, 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 the Iron Key site talks about this, is that it's deliberately potted solid with an epoxy compound so it is it is you know know, it's extremely hard to get into but it's also it it means that if you run over it or back over it with your car or something or you know it's also uncrushable so it it is really strong physically as well and it gives it a a degree of waterproofness as well so if you leave it in your uh in your pants and it goes through the wash or uh, what have you, um, if you dry out the connector, uh, it, it will work again. All of the electronic components are sealed, um, and it does make it tam- highly tamper-resistant, um, meaning, you know, you'd have to get into the device and grind through it and get at the chips, and your chances of getting at them without destroying them are, are much more difficult than with any other regular Neat. USB-type device. And all this for $79. Right. I, I, really, you could charge twice as much. That's really amazing. What's it's the max? actually a good deal. I mean, they, it is a they're, good deal. Yeah. They're, they're not cheap to make, and there's a lot of technology in it, um, and there's a lot of thought into it, too. What is the largest capacity? We're currently shipping four gigabyte devices, but we hope to have eight gigabyte devices out by the end of the month. And how much is a four gig? 149. That's good. See, that's very and, reasonable, I think. And Amazon has it for 138 at the moment. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the other thing about these things is, is one of the reasons um, that they cost a little bit more than a regular device, other than all the magic we've been talking about today, is that these devices use um, a type of flash memory called SLC flash. Um, and most of the really cheap ones you can get use something called MLC. And MLC is really designed like for... Um, you know, an iPod or something where you copy your files on it and you almost never, ever write them again. It's almost, you know, it's, it's, it's slow and it's not very reliable. Mm. Whereas SLC memory is designed for applications like an iron key where you're putting critical files on it. You want them to last a long time and you may be running applications where you're doing a lot of write cycles. So it's very much faster than MLC memory, but it also lasts up to 20 times longer. You can get 100,000 write cycles out of them. And I also heard you talking about wear leveling. So it looks like you did not short the the actual um, technology over on the physical storage side as well. I mean, you, you know, you did everything you need to to make it not only secure but really reliable. Right. So we've put uh, there's there's hardware wear leveling in it so that as you write as data is written to it, it's randomly mapped around to reduce hot spots in the memory to make it last a lot longer. Um, there's error correction. In, in the NAND flash as well, so there's full error correction on the chip. Uh, so if there's any kind of glitches in the memory, um, we actually detect it and we'll go move the block and rewrite it correctly. And then the other thing we do, which is actually turns out to be difficult, is implementing AES encryption correctly for large blocks 
is actually very difficult. It's called CBC mode encryption, and you actually have to store data inside of the NAND flash away from where your real data is uh, to make sure that the crypto, crypto stuff's not actually replayable if you write the same block. And that's yeah, actually so really hard to do. Yeah, cy uh, cipher blockchaining we've talked about um, on the show, so our listeners know what that is. But you're right, I hadn't thought about the, the difficulty of doing that in hardware. Right, where are you going to go store the initialization vectors? Yep. You've got extra metadata about every block of data. Every 512 block of data has got extra metadata that's got to be stored somewhere. And so thinking about where that's going to be mapped is actually a real challenge. And so I, I've, always, I've always wondered about where leveling. Um, what's the, the mapping page size that is typically used? Um, there's different page sizes, and actually I'm not a Flash engineer, so that's, I'm not sure I can accurately answer that, but uh, 1024 uh, byte pages. There's, there's small maps, there's large maps, there's sectors. There's right. Now, now I'm talking beyond my area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> you sound good to me. <laughs> well, Dave, well, I'm I'm very impressed. Yeah, it's really great to talk to you, Dave. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. Uh, just, uh, I'm, I'm not kidding. It sounds like something I want to run out and buy. Uh, Ironkey.com. There, there you go. Yeah, we'll give you the plug. Thanks. Um, Thanks, guys. Uh, I can, really appreciate the interview. Sure. Uh, can you make them smaller? I wish it were smaller. That's oh, the only. That's cool. it's the only brushed complaint. metal. It looks like a. Looks like like a kind of a cool retro cigarette lighter almost. Yeah, um, and we put a lot of work into the physical case. So let's talk about smaller. Um, yes, they can be made smaller, but as with everything, there are compromises. So the first one is it's, it's the thickness that it is nine millimeters because um, you, very, you need to accommodate varying chip heights. It's a double-sided board. We, the way we get a lot of the speed is we're writing parallel channels at the same time. Yep. So we actually have two memory chips in there, not one. Now, if we had one memory chip, it would run half as fast, but we could make it probably 12 or 14 millimeters shorter. So we could actually make it quite a bit shorter, but you're going to sacrifice speed because, you know, you're, you're, you've taken away one channel of memory. So you're interleaving, yep. you're interleaving the writes? Yeah. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole high-speed DMA engine in there that's parallel. Is that um, common in a USB key, or is that something you guys... Oh, and high-end ones. Huh. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it's the way they get the um, the writing performance up. Is they're writing in parallel to many chips because each chip has mm -hmm. a maximum uh, bandwidth. Yeah, even right. among USB 2.0 keys, there's a dramatic yes. difference in writing. Oh yes. yeah. yeah, well the, the the difference is 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 the the single versus tool and the MLC versus SLC. Your main speed comes from MLC versus SLC. So you can get an MLC device with single chip; it'll write four megabytes a second, maybe three. And we can write up to 18 to 20 wow. megabytes per second because it's much faster, more expensive memory, and because it's, par it's dual channel. Is the read faster as well? Yeah, it's like 30 megabytes per second or more wow. on the bigger ones. These are faster than the hard drives of a few years ago. That's what blows me away. I can't believe it. That's just great. Very cool. Yeah. And it's got a nice blinky light, too. <laughs> well... It's got a little blinky light, and it actually, the, the, the colors actually mean things. Um, there's firmware verification at the beginning, which is when it changes different colors, oh, lets you know if the correct firmware is in there or not, all of these non-documented features. Um, and actually, when they're dead, there's a little blinky light session, too, that lets you know they've actually cleanly erased. And for certain applications where you need to know it's safe to leave it dead, that's helpful.
Oh, that's interesting. I may have to kill mine or one of mine after all just to watch that other light. Uh, well, well, different firmware versions may ha- may or may not have it, so I can't guarantee how. I don't know how old yours are, but uh, that's one of the newer features is um, the ability on the light to signal that the device is safe to be left. That's very um, nice. That it's completely killed itself, yeah. And now, uh, finally, uh, the unannounced feature that will be unannounced in uh, at RSA <laughs> Will that be a, a uh, upgrade, or will it require a new iron key? So there's been some discussion about If you were that. to add some features, let's <laughs> That's say. the issue. So we design these devices to be completely field upgradable, to where you can actually download um, software and firmware updates from us. Mm. Um, so we don't want to require new hardware for that, and we want to make these types of upgrades downloadable. I will tell you guys that the challenge has been um, the constant battle between people demanding new features and, you know, people wanting these upgrades and also QA of the upgrades. Well, don't you, all, you also want to lock down the firmware, right? You don't want to make it too easily upgraded. Oh, no, yeah. Trust me, the firmware is pretty locked down. Yeah, yeah. But the question, the challenge is that, we're, that we need to do is, you know, if we make that upgrade happen and you have a device with a certain version of firmware, but not a different, another one, and, and, and then you did this thing to it and stored this data here or there, it's going to be so different across the user base that the testing matrix that we have to do is extremely difficult. And so we're actually kind of working through that right now over the next month or so is, you know, the, getting the process down where we can actually release updates a little more frequently maybe smaller updates more frequently. So that's our hope this year is really to get into more of a regular pattern. And, you know, some people would say, well, gee, I can get an update to, you know, Firefox every three months or what have you, or, you know, and, and yes, it's true, but that's one piece of software. Right. Well, and and also, I mean, for example, in the case of Microsoft, people are getting updates every month, whether they want them or not, because, there are serious security problems that Microsoft is continually fixing, and it would be, you know, obviously defeat the whole point if the iron key were not really, really, really well designed from a security standpoint. Yeah, I mean, we have, we're in a lot better position than Microsoft, given that we control the hardware, and, and you know, we came in it with digitally signed hardware and, and firmware and software, so you're right, we're in a much cleaner position um, but, you know, on the, to, to their you know, credit, they've had 25 years to develop their software update process. And, and you know, they can now do it about, about once every month. Um, ours is, a, you know, we're, we don't quite have 25 years of history under our belt. And I think the other one is we don't want to do so many updates. Right. Um, and we're updating firmware as well as software. So it's actually far more challenging than might actually appear on the surface. Yeah. Good. Well, we'll look forward to see what we can do new with our iron keys. In about a month. Yeah. Yep. Dave, it's really been great talking to you, and now I'm sold. I tell you, you make, a, you make an excellent uh, representative. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It's good, because it's your company, so that's yep. good. Yeah. Uh, Dave is the CEO at Iron Key. He also has a blog you can read on the Iron Key site if you want to uh, know more about uh, Iron Key and its uses and uh, so forth. Uh, that's ironkey.com, and your blog is blog.ironkey.com. Dave Jevons, thanks so much for uh, joining us. We really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, David. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Wow. 
Okay, I'm. Uh, I didn't. You know, you're you're a cagey <laughs> fella, Steve Gibson, because you said oh, we're going to talk about. Hockey. I didn't realize it was it was did all that stuff. That's really well. Neat. What what I learned during this also, which for me as obviously as a developer and with my perfect paper passwords and all that, is that it's a multi-factor authentication dongle right. that that is having an open API on its way. So you know that becomes very interesting in addition to everything else it can do. Security is very interesting. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is, unlike a lot of programming, although I guess all programming now has to be security aware, you have an adversary. So it's more it's a more kind of challenging form of programming where you, it's I mean, it's really an intellectual challenge to think. Oh, Leo. It, yeah. It, it's like, you know, everything. For example, when I was writing our e-commerce system, there's I mean, everything I did, everything I thought about was was you know spy versus spy right. it was it was you know, a, you know like everything i was doing was okay now or or, or even when i did the perfect paper password system w- in order to create secure ro- roaming for myself and and greg and sue was okay now wait a minute what if what if what if and so you're constantly challenging yourself with you know what could someone do to get around this man i guess all programming nowadays if it's on the web uh, it's going to have to be aware of that. Anything. That oh, and, and Leo, that is the huge vulnerability. Every single um, newsletter that I get from from Sands, for example, they talk about the, the the phenomenal number of insecure web apps that have known vulnerabilities in them because wow. people are just rushing these things onto the net, and security is the last thing they think about, rather than the first thing they think about. Yeah, which you know it really needs to be. Yeah, and it's hey, certainly the it's, it's the only thing these guys thought about. <laughs> Clearly, I do want to mention. Speaking of security, the fantastic folks at Astaro a s t a r o dot com. That's all they think about day and night. They are you know Dave reminds me of these guys. Uh, they think about this stuff. They're constantly working to make the best possible product. And the Astaro Security Gateway updates all the time with the Astaro up to date, so that you always have the best stuff out there both commercial and open source all the security you want this is a utm device so it includes of course filtering firewall remote access and vpn ssl vpns in fact in fact it uses ipsec ltp over ipsec pptp tunneling um and ssl uh you get uh intrusion protection you get three different antiviruses two for email one for the web you get complete web content control, even instant messaging and peer-to-peer, anti-spyware. I mean, it just goes on and on. This stuff is great, and it's all in a little box. You just Once you get it set up, your enterprise is safe, and it scales with you up to 10 units together without the need for additional load balancing uh, hardware or software. And, and you could, I mean, that's a big, that's a lot of seats you can handle. Astaro, you've heard the name. Now get a demo in your office of the latest Astaro V7. Call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. If you're a non-commercial user, you can get a free home user license that includes everything except the hardware. You put it on any beige box. It's a Linux distribution. Easy to do. And they also have, by the way, I should point out, appliances at VMware's site. So it makes it very easy to install. Find out more at astaro.com slash security now. And again, if you're in business, get that free demo, 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Well, this you was know, a fun episode. I'm just I want to I, I just uh, inject one thing. Uh, 
I just got a big kick out of the fact listening to Dave, who's you know steeped in security and tech and security technology. All the things he talked about, we've covered on security. Yeah, now. I know. You know, it was neat. It was like we've been building up to it. You could listen to this if you'd listen to all the previous ones and understand what he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, the, the acronyms TOR and, and Cypher blockchaining yep. and, and public key and private key and symmetric crypto. And, I mean, just, you know, it was everything <laughs> we've done here. It was just really neat. And it's what impresses me about it is, is uh, you know, it, it answers all those questions that you would have. And it has capabilities. It just blows me away. I think running their own TOR servers, wow. I mean, these guys obviously are into this stuff, and they, and they share, our, uh, share your sensibilities about the whole thing. Yep. All right, yep. Steve, we're going to wrap up next week. It's a Q&A segment. Yes, 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 yes. People should and go then, to... Uh, and, and then the week after, we've got our RAM hacking episode. Oh, we're going to talk about that, uh, the, crypt, uh, the Freon uh, uh, freezing thing? Freezing RAM and ah. Firewire backdoors and USB boot dongles for sucking RAM contents out and all kinds of cool stuff. Oh, great. So we, we know we've been getting a lot of email about that. We'll talk about that. Next week, we'll answer many of your questions. Uh, and, of course, you can go to Security Now's website. Well, Steve's website, grc.com, uh, to submit a question, to ask a question. Uh, you can also go there to get 16 kilobit versions of this show, the really small ones for people who have uh, dial-up. Uh, you can also get transcripts. A lot of people like to read along, a highlight as they go. All of that at grc.com slash security now. And that's where you can find all of Steve's great freebies, including the new, the new updated Wismo that uh, <laughs> automatically turns off that wireless zero config. That's a very useful... The new Wanlock command. Wanlock. Yeah. Now with Landlock. <laughs> I love it. It's Wismo. Now with Wanlock. Uh, you can also, of course, get Spin right there, which is uh, Steve's bread and butter and a great program, a must-have program. It is the ultimate file and disk recovery utility. It's a maintenance utility for your hard drive. If you've got a spinning disk, you need SpinRight, GRC.com for that, too. Steve, we'll see you next week. Right, Leo. Security now.